Episode 44 of our weekly Cricket Hair vodcast. Lots to talk about this week. First up, there's been a report published about women's cricket. This week, FICA, the Federation of International Cricketers Associations, released their Women's Professional Cricket Global Employment Report. FICA was established in 1998 to give an international voice to professional cricket players via organisations like the Professional Cricketers Association in England and the Australian Cricketers Association. This report is the second report FICA have produced on the women's game. The first one was published in 2018. FICA's aim going forward is to report regularly on the state of professionalism in the game. The report is based partly on a survey of players carried out at the end of 2019. 117 players responded to the survey in total. 83 international players and 34 domestic players. The data in the report was all collected prior to 2020, so it doesn't really take into account the impact of the pandemic or the introduction of the new regional structures in England last summer. A key finding is that there are just 119 players that FICA consider to be full-time professionals, which is actually one less than the number it found two years ago. Crucially, it does not consider the Australians who played in the WBBL and the WNCL in 2019 to have been full-time professionals. The report ranks Australia as the only country with what it calls a progressive professional cricket structure. England is classified as fledgling professional, alongside India, New Zealand, South Africa and the West Indies. The remaining countries are considered amateur, no country achieved FICA's top category of established professional. The report makes a number of recommendations. Firstly, the report calls for the ICC to increase its investment in women's cricket to help increase the pace of professionalism in the women's game. Secondly, the report challenges the ICC to increase the volume of cricket played. The top players in Australia and England played less than 30 days of international cricket in 2019, compared to up to 90 days for some of male cricketers. Thirdly, there is a call for the ICC to develop and agree global scheduling windows to prevent overlap between domestic leagues like the WBBL and the 100 and international cricket. Overall, it's a really good report, isn't it, Sid? Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really an important piece of work, I think. I think that, you know, it's the most widespread survey of professionalism in women's cricket since the last one they did. Um, and they're the only people that are doing this. They're gathering data from as many countries as they can. Um, and at the end of the day, they are, uh, they're challenging the ICC and challenging cricket to, to make some quite radical progress um, in, in terms of uh, the parity of the women's game with the men's game. So I think that that is really important and, and nobody else is doing that at the, at the moment really. No, nobody offers any significant power so I think it's a really important report. Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. I think um, obviously the fact that it's so radical in that respect potentially means that it's going to be quite difficult to implement some of the recommendations. Um, my feeling reading through it yesterday in, in detail was that actually um, in a way FICA are calling on the ICC to be more radical when it comes to women's cricket than they've proved 
with regards to the men's game. They're calling on the ICC to be very interventionist, um, to you know set up this kind of new um, committee that, that looks at standards and welfare in women's cricket. And they're calling on the ICC ultimately to, to redistribute wealth um, around the, the world in women's cricket in a way that they've proved so reluctant to do in the men's game. So I think that it's going to be a challenge to implement some of these recommendations, um, partly because of the, uh, the way the ICC has operated as a body and continues to operate. Um, so it's, it's a challenge, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, be calling for these things. Um, it's really important, as you say. Have you got any reservations about the report, Sid? Well, if I was if I was the ECB, um, I, I would be slightly unhappy at the conclusion that, that that England are significantly behind Australia. I mean, obviously, with you know with grade boundaries, it can be difficult, and they might argue that you know Australia are here and England are just like here. But unfortunately, that was the boundary, guys. But it doesn't really feel like that mm -hmm. from the perspective of the report. And actually, the report you know shows Australia it's itself. Um, in, a, in a very similar light to England, you know, they're not counting the WNCL players as professionals and the WBPL, but WBBL players as full-time professionals. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got exactly the same situation pertaining in Australia as in England from their own perspective. And so if I was part of the ECB's setup looking at this, I would feel slightly unhappy that England was ranked with South Africa and the West Indies, which have no even semi-professional domestic structure, yeah. um, rather than being ranked up there with Australia. Um, but, you know, that's at the end of the day, that's a little bit of a quibble. What about you, Ralph? Have you had any res reservations? Yeah, a few. And I did tweet yesterday, so some people may already be aware of a couple of um, the, the things that I think are a bit problematic about the report. Um, I guess, firstly, with my academic hat on, the methodology is slightly problematic. Um, so they've run this survey with, with players, um, but because the survey is very much relies on the local... Um, players association to distribute it and um, they've been un unable to get data from quite a number of it, quite quite significant countries places like Sri Lanka um, Zimbabwe um, and um, Bangladesh as well um, so that's that's a bit disappointing I think um, there's a, a Something that I found a bit odd is the time lag between when the data was collected, which I believe was in 2018 and 2019, um, and the time that they've actually released the report, which is we're now in early 2021. They're talking about things like the World T20 in 2018, which we were at in the Caribbean, which feels so long ago now. Um, and there's even been some media coverage of the report this week. I noticed that there was a story... Um, in the New Zealand media, which was basically Amy Satterwhite saying, oh, well, it's out of date now. Um, you know, things have changed quite a lot since then. And things do change in women's cricket, um, sometimes quite quickly, actually. So I think that um, actually, in a way, FICA need to try and be a little bit more speedy about um, the time lag between collecting the data and publishing the data. Um, I mean, I'm an academic. We often take years to do things. But, you know, in this context, it can be quite important, I think. Um, so there's that. And then there are a couple of issues that I tweeted about yesterday. The first one is I don't really understand why, if FICA are being so radical in so many other respects, they're not calling for more women's test cricket. And it's quite clear to me that they aren't, that that isn't something that they think um, we should be doing. It's not one of their recommendations. And when they um, put the survey out to the players, 
they specifically asked, do you think that there should be, um, you know, do you think that there's the right balance between ODI and T20 cricket? And, you know, a a huge overwhelming majority of the players said we think ODI cricket's really important because it's the longest format that we play. But I bet if you'd put a question in about test cricket, you would have got that player voice coming through and you would have therefore had a really strong argument in favour of um, progressing women's test cricket. So I don't quite understand why they haven't done that. It'd be really interesting to, to maybe try and find out a little bit more about that from Fika. And the other thing um, is about this issue of the fact that what they're pushing for is not equal pay. It's something that they've termed pay parity, um, which isn't equal pay. It's the women earning Um, 30% or above of what men's cricketers are earning. So a country will move up to that top ranking, which nobody's in at the moment. Australia are the only country in the second tier, Um, but the top tier is um, nobody's there. And to achieve achieve that, you have to earn, you have to have your women players earning 30% or more of what your men's players, players are earning. Now, to me, that just isn't radical enough. Know, why are we not aiming at equal pay? It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's probably not going to happen in the next 10 years. And that's fine. But that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be our ultimate aspiration. So I think in some ways, yes, the report is very radical. But in other ways, for me, it doesn't quite go far enough, really, in terms of its its calls for parity for women's cricket. Um, and there were some big recommendations in there, weren't there, Sid? So overall, how do you feel about the report recommendations? I think we agree with with them overall. I do think that there's one thing that we need to acknowledge, um, which is that at the end of the day, as you as you said, that the, the recommendations, a lot of them come down to kind of redistributing wealth, and the the kind of challenge that organisations like FICA have to face up to, and the ICC and you know, all the cricketing organisations, is that at the end of the day, in the short term, if you're going to redistribute wealth to invest in the women's game, that wealth can only come from one place. It can only come from the men's game. So you have to acknowledge that the only way to make these radical changes is actually to take money out of the men's game. Mm-hmm. The only way that you're going to you know, achieve more money for the women's cricket is to take some of those huge pay packets in the men's game, to take some of those huge millions that are distributed in prize money and say, you know what, guys, in the short term, you're going to have a bit less. And unless you're prepared to explicitly stand up and say that, then, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to get over that hurdle, if you like. So I'm slightly concerned about that. I think that, you know, you can talk all you want, but unless you're prepared to address the issue of actually, in the short term, you need to take some money out of men's cricket to invest in women's cricket, then you're never going to make those dreams a reality. Okay. Well, that's the FICA report. The second big bit of news that we had this week was, as predicted, we have had the England squad announced to tour New Zealand. Um, as we thought, they're going to be playing in three ODIs and three T20s over there. Now, unfortunately, um, there had been talk of a tri-series, including Australia. That isn't now going to be possible. We believe that there's a logistical issue in terms of how many teams New Zealand can actually um, facilitate quarantining simultaneously. So that's put paid to ideas of a tri-series. So basically England will be on one plane out of New Zealand and Australia will be getting the next plane in and then playing a series um, in kind of late March, I think. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit disappointing, I suppose, because it would have been nice to for England to also have been playing Australia. But at the moment, in this situation, I guess we'll take whatever cricket we can get, won't we, Sid? Absolutely. 
And I suppose the other thing is that we're quite lucky that the New Zealand government, given what a complete mess our government are making of COVID over here, we're lucky that they're letting them travel over there at all, aren't we? Um, you know, it's, it's this crazy new variant and there's all kinds of concerns and obviously New Zealand currently COVID free. And so um, Heather Knight did stress in the press conference this week that the quarantine um, the quarantine rules are going to be very strict for the England team. They're not really going to be able to, um, I don't even think they're going to be able to leave their rooms for, for the first week and then they'll be doing a bit of team training um, for, the, for the second week of their quarantine. However, they have got that nice incentive at the end of it that they can all go out to bars and have a normal life for a while. So I'm a bit jealous, to be honest. Anyway, were there any surprises in the squad, Sid? Because last week we said, oh, it will be the same old team and, um, you know, it will be a very conservative squad selection. So we weren't quite right about that, were we? Well, we were right in the sense that I think we would have been right if it wasn't for injuries. But we've uh, got injuries to Anya Shrubsoul, um and also to Katie George, mm -hmm. which meant that they were obviously concerned about having some seam bowling in there. Um, so Tash Farron is on the comeback path. So that's that's good news if you're Tash Farron. <laughs> that's great news. Well done, Tash. And um, you've said there that Anna Shobsoll is unfortunately out with an injury. She's obviously England's vice-captain and they're one of their leading bowlers. How much will England miss her, do you think? I think in the short term, in the context of this series, actually, they won't miss her that much at all because um, if they're going to play, it looks like they're... Uh, my guess is that they'll play two, two seamers and then... Um, have some backup from that Siva. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, you're talking about Freya Davis coming in and probably playing all of the ODIs. Um, and I think that Freya Davis will do, you know, a bang-up job. And, you know, she won't let England down on, on, this, on this front. So, you know, everyone knows what Anya can do in those big games. She's a, she's a, she's a huge big game player, uh, you know, and she can make magic happen. Um, but Freya Davis will come in and, and do a, a job and so, you know, I think that England will be okay with that. I think that there is a risk if Catherine Brunt gets injured as well that England suddenly lose an awful lot of experience. Mm. Um, and you know, experience can be a big deal. And we may see some things later in the in the 2020 series where that experience becomes a big deal. You know, it's how do you deal with a situation where you know you, you bowl two overs and you've been carted for 60 by Sophie Devine. You know, at that point, experience really comes into into the equation. So it might be a challenge then, but, you know, it's perhaps, you know, challenges are what it's all about, right? I think potentially it could be a really um, good positive opportunity for somebody like Freya Davies to, op to open the bowling um, in the sense of we know that New Zealand aren't going to be the strongest team, especially given that Susie Bates is injured and won't be playing this series. Um, and therefore it's almost... Um, it's kind of um, a bit of a low pressure way to experience that high pressure event of opening the bowling for England in ODIs for the first time. So I think that that potentially could be quite a positive opportunity. England are obviously hoping that um, that Davis is, is the future as far as the fast bowling goes um, for when Catherine Brunt retires. And so therefore they do need to be giving her these opportunities and, and you know, what better chance to do it than in a series where there isn't a huge amount riding on it. Um, and you know, 12 months on from the World Cup. I'm going to be really interested to see the 11 that they play in these ODIs against New Zealand because I think it's going to be really similar to the 11 who take to the field in England's opening fixture in the World Cup in 12 months' time against Australia. 
Um, and I do think that because there's not going to be a huge amount of cricket between now and then, that actually the 11 that they field in these three ODIs is going to be really significant and indicative of the players who they see as being very important in their World Cup title defence. So I think that'll be really interesting. I think in terms of the T20 leg of the tour, that's when we might see um, some of these other players maybe coming in and then there being a bit more experimentation. So potentially if Tash Farron is going to get a game, um, then that might be when she comes in, Sid. What do you think? Yeah, potentially. And I think that she, she'd be a great choice to come in then. Um, and, you know, Sophia Dunkley we want to see playing mm. as well, although it will be interesting to see if she figures in the ODI team at all. Yeah. Um, you know... And I guess, you know, the other thing that we want to try and see is whether England can really give genuine opportunities to these players and to players like Maddie Villiers um, and Sarah Glenn, whether they can, you know, get them a bit up the batting order. There was talk in uh, the summer of, uh, in the final T20 against the West Indies, of getting Sarah Glenn right up the batting yeah. order and having her open the batting. That didn't happen in the end because the game was cut down to a 5 over slogathon. Um, but things like that, that's, that's a chance to kind of give these players real opportunities yeah. because that's the other thing that's, the, that's lacking. Because England are using T20s to give players opportunities, they're actually not really getting an opportunity because they're getting you know, one, one over or getting to face a few balls at the end of a match or whatever. So it's those opportunities that we want to see. Now there was one other really interesting inclusion in the press release um, which told us which players are flying out to New Zealand. And we know that Izzy Wong is going to be getting on the plane with the rest of the players, but she hasn't been formally included in the squad. So what's going on there, Sid? Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure in a way, in the, in the sense that, you know, what England have said is that Izzy Wong is coming out there, but she's definitely not part of the squad. Um, but she might play if we need her, but she's not part of the squad. So we saw actually a couple of newspaper headlines that said Izzy Wong named an England squad, and England have quite explicitly said that that's not mm. the case. On the other hand she's going so you know it's, it's like neither one thing nor the other she's more likely to play than somebody who isn't going to be in New Zealand at the time I yeah. suppose so um, potential concerns that Covid somehow runs through the team and they need extra cover I don't quite know I don't quite understand it but um, it's obviously an exciting opportunity for her so good luck to her anyway that's all for this week uh, lots to digest there, particularly with the FICA report. Um, do tweet us if you have any thoughts and we can reflect that in next week's podcast. Bye for now. Bye.